Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming directly from the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University in the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, and I will be your host today. And on the laptop controlling the software is our very own Troy. Say hello, Troy. Hello, hello, hello. God. (laughs) Our podcast today is a part two of an interview we conducted in November 2017 with Dr. Don Mabalan and her work documenting the life of Larry Seven Fingers at Leong. If you want to know why he's called Seven Fingers, you'll have to go back to part one. In this podcast, we are talking about her research that she did. Of course, we'll talk about how she discovered it, Leong and the archives she has been using. But we take a quick dive into how history can be a personal motivator from people and how to create a feeling of, wow, me too. History has a way of reconnecting. It's not just stories from the past that we can say, well, that was a neat kind of story. I'm kind of neat. I can tell that at the dinner table. It's really a vehicle to relate to the past, to understand ourselves and others who experienced similar events in the past, which we can be used as the present-day motivator for solidarity. We're all not that different. We all have similar stories that we can relate to and together fight for a change, live in a community together, or even just give that nod to, yeah, yeah, we did the same thing. I especially like how Dawn finds her own personal connection and comes across letters and photos and other documents that include her actual father. And sometimes it documents uh, her friends, her friends' parents. So she shares that experience with us of not only the Me Too feeling, but also a connection with the history on a very personal level. Anyway, I hope you enjoy part two of our podcast with Dr. Don Mabalan and her research into the life of Larry Itliong. Don, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Why don't we just start first, how you got involved with this project? Well, my, my dissertation at Stanford and my first book was about the Little Manila community in my hometown of Stockton, California. It had been the largest community of Filipinos outside of the Philippines for much of the 20th century, and most of it was destroyed with uh, urban redevelopment projects in the 1950s and, and 60s, and a huge freeway project in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And uh, as I was doing my research for that book, book, I kept running into Larry Itlio. And uh, I I had vaguely known who he was because we were just sort of starting to talk about him in college. Uh, and uh, I was fortunate enough to have been, um, a, I had gone to UCLA and many of our, our student activists and student leaders at UCLA did annual trips to Agmayani Village. And, uh, and uh, Manong Philip Veracruz published his book when I was a senior at UCLA, or junior at UCLA, and he came and did a book talk. And, and I bought the book, and he signed it, and I met him. And uh, so that was, I was a, a junior at UCLA when that happened. And so I was, I, I had known about Larry Itliung, but I didn't realize that he, until I was doing the Little Manila book, that he had lived in Stockton for several decades, and that the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee was founded in Stockton. And that he, no, he had known my father for years. You know, they they were in the same social groups, the same. Uh, it was called the Leonarios del Trabajo. It was a, a, a fraternity, men and women, um, that was founded in, in the Philippines in the nineteen teens and came over to Stockton and and spread throughout the nation in the nineteen twenties. So they were fraternity brothers, and you know, uh, 
and it made me realize how little we knew about Lariat Leung in the larger community. And a few things happened in the last decade. Um, We've elected our first Filipino-American state legislator in Rob Bonta. Rob Bonta's family actually lived at La Paz for several years, and so many of his formative years were with UFW. His parents were organizers. And he sponsored a bill in 2013 called uh, AB-123, Assembly Bill 123, that required the teaching of Filipino-American labor history in the public schools in California. And then two years later, 2015, he uh, sponsored a bill that passed for Lariat Leung Day on October 25th. So all of this was happening as I was finishing my book, um, as uh, I was kind of beginning to do the research on Lariat Leung. And I knew about halfway through my little Manila book that my next project was going to be about uncovering this history. Okay, cool. Um, so can you talk to us about the process of research, researching Larry? And I've always been curious. It's like when you're writing a biography, you must do a deep dive into this person's life. What is that like? <laughs> you know, uh, I feel like after this is I'm coming to the end of my second visit here. And I feel like Larry, I, I'm so much closer to knowing who Larry is and so much further away. Hmm. Um, you know, this is my first stab at, at a biography, and so I'm kind of learning as I go. And he's a really complicated figure. I mean, I've done the research that I had done before I got to the Ruther had really been in the Filipino American National Historical Society archives. He had he had left some papers there. That's our big public history organization that's headquartered in Seattle, and we have our archives there. And uh, doctors Fred and Dorothy Cordova founded the organization, and um, they were kind of young activists when Monong Larry, meaning Monong meaning older brother, that's what the community called Monong Larry, Monong Philip, were doing talks to college age students and people in their 20s and 30s. And so they really revered him and kind of passed on that reverence to us, the next generation of activists and public historians and academics that came up. But um, so I started my research there and he had left kind of a few crumbs there. And we know a more about the union that he had been a vice president of. The um, it, the union changed names like 10 times because of red baiting, right? I mean, I think they ended being Local 37 uh, ILWU. They were kicked out of the CIO and, you know, they were way too red for a lot of other unions. So he had been vice president and dispatcher there. So um, some of his papers are at University of Washington's labor archives and some documents. But um, but I think it was really important to see the two boxes of his papers that are here at, at the root there. I think they really give a window, open a window into his life. Um, so, uh, yeah. So I can imagine also that you're doing a lot of interviews. Yeah. You know, the, the, the hard thing, though, is that all of his peers are gone. Right. You know, there are very few people who are still alive. I did an oral history with Gil Padilla. Um, who was, you know, obviously one of the founders of the UFW and a contemporary. I did an interview with Al Rojas, um, whose name is, you know, pops up throughout the archives too. Um, one of the one of the organizers, and uh, some of the younger folks in in Delano, um, Delano, <laughs> um, as the old timers would say. And so they were people who knew Larry as an older man, as a, as a as a statesman, kind of in the elder statesman in the Filipino community. And so I think one of the big challenges and one of the things I'm really looking at in the papers here is what were his interactions with other organizers, with other leaders, with Caesar, with Dolores, um, 
What about the other Filipino organizers who came up with him and the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee? So um, the AWOC papers that are here have been really insightful for me, um, providing that window into his interactions with people like Ben Gines and Pete Manuel, who were the, the ones who started the Coachella strike in May 1965, which um, then this, the, the same group then went on to, to, to Delano. So, uh, and then it was that core group that started the grape strike September 8th, 1965. So trying to understand how they worked with one another, how they talked with one another um, has been something I've really looked at, particularly this visit. Last visit, I was really tearing through Larry's the, Larry's two boxes, um, a lot of Philip Veracruz's papers, um, a lot of Pete Velasco's papers. Um, so yeah, now I'm, I'm looking at, at uh, Cesar Chavez's papers and some some other collections here. The Ronald Taylor paper is a Fresno Bee writer who did an interview. One of the biggest things I think I found was the interview that he did, Ronald Taylor, the Fresno Bee uh, uh, reporter, he did, apparently, Mono Larry had called him right before he sent his telegram to resign. Oh. So he kind of, he had some insight about, you know, why he wanted to quit and the feelings that he had. And so that's something I'm also trying to look at is um, what was the ripple effect through the United Farm Workers when when Larry or Monong Larry, elder brother Larry, as we call him in the community, um, resigned. You know, um, there's another set of documents that I found. Um, one of my mentors was Monong Larry's assistant kind of intern assistant named Ray Pasqua. When Monong Larry quit in October 1971, he wrote a very passionate letter to Cesar Chavez saying, what is happening? You know, why did he quit? You know, I think you owe me a personal explanation because I've given three years of volunteering every summer in this union, et cetera, et cetera. And it says a lot about, <clears throat> I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to understand this about relationships in the union that, Caesar did not respond himself, but he gave it to Philip Veracruz and said, hey, Filipino, go respond to this Filipino. Hmm. And hmm. Mono Larry, Mono Philip kind of, I'm still trying to trying to get through the letter and trying to understand that. But, but so there were some sticky relationships and tensions even amongst Filipinos in yeah. the union. Yeah. So. I think we'll touch on that a little later. Exactly. Because yeah. I'm curious about that. Yeah. Do you feel that you'll be going to um, visit the IWU? archives or the AFL-CIO archives to dig deep into since Larry was involved with AFL-CIO before Well, else. all the AWOC, the, the union that he was involved in, AFL-CIO union, was AWOC, and all the papers are here, mm -hmm. actually. So I, that's been a really great treasure trove to look through his daily work reports from 1959 on. You know, and I think one of the, one of the really cool things is seeing my dad's friends and my uncles and my relatives in the papers and being able to, you know, take take photos and send it to my friends and say, here, look at your dad. And I think it's, and I'm going to get emotional <laughs> now. This is the part that I get emotional, you know, because many of them didn't have us until they were older. And so they didn't talk about the fact that they had done labor organizing or they had been red baited or, you know, they were subject to deportation or, you know, that they had been with this radical labor union, et cetera, et cetera. And so it really for for at least one or two of my friends, um, it's been this, wow, my dad did this. Really? 
you know, oh, here's a here's a letter I found from your dad to Caesar here, you know, thought you'd want to know. That is so cool. Yeah, there's there's another person that just um, connected with me on Facebook that said, you know, oh, I saw that you're doing a Larry Itliung book project. I think, you know, the family lore is that my dad was the one who introduced Larry to Caesar. And I said, oh, okay, well, I've seen your last name in the archives. And on this trip, I found his dad's uh, weekly work reports when he was with the AFL-CIO union with Larry. Mm-hmm. And Larry, you know, he makes notes. I was with Larry today and Larry and I did this. And then there was a, there's a letter that f- it was basically letting him go. Sorry, we have no budget for you. But then a note that says, but wait, Larry says he wants you to stay on, you know, and I thought that was something, you know, and as I said, do you know anything about your grandfather? He says, I know nothing. That's touching. That's very touching. You that, know, that so. Gives a, that gives a connection. Totally. Than, yeah. Totally. And I think if, you know, more people realize, particularly in the Filipino American community, you know, how how central and pivotal and important our community was to this movement. What's next for uh, Mary, uh, for Larry's memory? Well, um, so I'm working on a children's book about Larry at Leung and uh, we are crowdfunding for it. And I believe today we're going to hit our goal. Excellent. Our goal was 35,000. Um, and it's going to be part of a series of Filipino American history books for children that um, uh, my co-author, Gail Romasanta, she's starting her own publishing company. She's also from Stockton. Her grandfathers were Monongs who came over in the 1920s. And uh, so she, both she and I grew up as the daughter and granddaughter of farm workers with all of that history around us. We both went away to college and took ethnic studies, learned all of this history other places, and then came back and saw both of us saw our home towns with new eyes and um so i've been working on this larry young biography for a good two three years really seriously i mean i finished my book and then i teach at san francisco state we teach so much and it's hard to kind of get away and 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 do this research so i came to the ruther in 2015 and and this is my second visit now and when gail approached me and said hey what about a children's book about larry at leung um i don't think i'm finished with the research for my academic biography but i I have more than enough for a children's book. And I thought that's a fantastic idea because it shouldn't take until college for people to understand that the United Farm Workers was a Mexican-American movement. It was also a Filipino-American movement. It was a multi-ethnic movement. It was a multi-generational movement. And I think the, I think it's the, the tip of the iceberg to say, well, Filipinos were there too. Okay, great. Well, then so what? So what that Filipinos were there too? What does that mean for how we need to continue to struggle for justice today, for the lessons that we need to impart to our young people today? And it's, it begins with, hey, me too. But it, I feel like the, con- the conversation has to continue with, okay, well, how did the Mexicans and Filipinos get along? How did they not get along? What were the what were the positives that come out of what we learned from this experience of of really forging this historic solidarity? I mean, that's why they're called the United Farm Workers. It's these groups that had always been kept apart, and here they are united, really struggling and stumbling towards, um, you, you know, a unionization of farm workers, which is still not realized. Um, you know, farm workers. Uh, we just had a 19-year-old die in Stockton less than five years ago, a 19-year-old pregnant woman die um, from heat stroke and lack of water, for example. So there's still so many struggles. And Filipinos and Mexicans, we're the two largest ethnic groups after um, after African-Americans in California. Well, actually, it's it's yeah, we're the, Filipinos are the third largest ethnic group. So I think it's like whites, Latinos, and then African-Americans, and then Filipinos now. How do we learn from, how do we learn from what happened in the UFW 
to continue on how to build enduring and powerful and impactful coalitions because we need to do that for so many things in terms of immigration right now, um, in terms of different policies, many, many different policies, too, too many to name. But um, So the timing's, timing's right for history and memory to come together and remember what the past was like. Exactly. Because right now we need to understand that we're all from different areas. Yeah. But we're in for the same fight. It's happened before. Yes, it'll happen it happened before. I mean, how do we forge solidarity? What are the challenges that we've gone through? I mean, those are the big lessons. Um, and if it starts with kids saying, hey, I was there too. You know, I mean, and, and here's a book with somebody who looks like me. And my grandfather's experience, this is what happened in my family too. My grandfather, my great-grandfather came over here and worked in the fields. And, you know, um, I think I'm I'm – I'm excited, of course, for my academic book about Larry Yitling. I'm even more excited about this children's book because I really see, I mean, I know how important books were to me as a kid and how much they fired my imagination, how much they shaped my outlook on the world. And I want to do that for the next generation. I myself don't have kids. I have tons of nieces and nephews, tons of godchildren. Um, and so I have a huge family and I'm excited to see what this book is, you know, how how this book will will shape not just their thinking, but their classmates, you know, and we're hoping to get it into to may, as many public schools as we can and into libraries. So it's not just for the Filipino community. It's for, you know, all communities. So and and the academic biography, and I'll take a little bit longer. But uh, well, I can't wait for both. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. That was an interview with Dr. Mubalan. Uh, she was a recipient of the Sam Fishman Travel Grant for 2017. The Fishman Grant provides up to $1,000 to support travel to the Ruther Library to use archival records related to the American labor movement. The award is named in honor of Sam Fishman, a former UAW and Michigan AFL-CIO leader. So we give out about five to six a year. So if you're interested, please visit our website at www.ruther.wame.edu. Thanks for listening, everybody. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistants from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, Paul Nearing, and Mary Wallace. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Mabalin. 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 Bilmer. Nernick. <laughs> All right, Paul. Nerick? Nerick. You've only worked with him for, what, 10, almost 11 years, Dan? <laughs> Nerick. Uh, I call him a weirdo. No, I don't. Take that out. <laughs> Same with this Bart fellow. Hipster doofus. Yep, definitely hipster. And you re- you delete this part. <laughs> <laughs>